Welcome to On the Issues 15 Minutes of Feminism with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. This week we add to our podcast platform, 15 Minutes of Feminism, where we will give a serious take on an important issue featuring a single guest, okay, maybe two guests from time to time. On this show, we hear from voices at the center of the story, people you should know, those who roll up their sleeves and change the world. These are guests who have things to do, places to be, and something important to say. Next week, we'll be back with our regular programming. Today, we center on Brianna Taylor. We say her name and revisit her story and what comes next. And we get right to business with Dr. Cherie Dawson Edwards. She is an Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Professor for the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Louisville. She lives in Louisville, Kentucky, where she also directs the College of Arts and Sciences Social Change Minor. So grateful to be joined by Dr. Cherie Dawson Edwards for this new platform that we're launching. And I want to start off with a question that might seem a little bit obvious, but I know you'll give me some real nuance to it. And that is to think about who's responsible for the death of Breonna Taylor? Who killed Breonna Taylor? You know, in in Louisville, you know, the first response, the first gut response would be that the police, you know, killed Breonna, Breonna Taylor that their ability to obtain a no-knock warrant for a situation like hers where there wasn't um, any real evidence of of violence and and criminality, but there were some assumptions about someone that she was friends with or had previously dated. Um, And so in Louisville, it feels like the police did it because they were able to um, enter her, her home um, in the middle of the night while she was asleep. but, you know, from my perspective, if I'm really honest, I think we all did, you know, that we failed Brianna Taylor. Um, and I, I want to speak from, from Louisville because I'm from Louisville um, and I haven't always lived here, but I'm from here. Um, I, I teach criminal justice. I, I teach social change and social justice. I'm a community engaged scholar. And the the culmination of events that occurred in Louisville last year are are kind of a culmination of the work that I've been doing for 20 years as an academic and trying to get people to understand how all these things, all these dynamics, not just the justice system, but, but our, our, the culture of our city and, and um, people's inability to like care about things until it, it hits home or hit them. Um, and so it was frustrating for me because I've been trying to talk about these issues. And there are lots of people that listen. But the beauty of it is that people realize that we were all we are all complicit if we don't understand FOP contracts and unions and all the details and all the things that kept us from finding out information or kept us as a city from getting just for, from getting for getting ju- from getting justice for Brianna. Um, I think that I think we're all complicit because we allow policing to continue the way that it always has. And it wasn't until, I mean, like there have been plenty of grassroots folks in Louisville that have been, you know, pushing um, against police abuse and violence for decades, but it took this to happen for a cross section of the city to wake up and say, wait, this is not okay. And so they passed an ordinance in 17 days that banned no knock warrants after it all came out. Well, that's pretty shocking when you think about it, because it took 
just barely two weeks to do that after she died, after she was killed, but one didn't see that beforehand. It strikes me that there's something else about her case too, which is that it's a woman. Could you speak to how society, you know, pays attention or doesn't pay attention to police harms that affect women's lives? Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I'll center this around Breonna Taylor and, and Black women in particular. It's just been very hurtful and harmful to see, I mean, and nobody should ever read like comments on news articles, <laughs> but every now and then I get sucked into doing that because I want to know what other people are thinking, right? And then I read them these horrible things that, you know, she shouldn't have been dating a drug dealer and she shouldn't have been doing this and she shouldn't have been, and she wasn't in her bed. And she was you know, like, all of these narratives just were not true in this case. And if, she, and she wasn't dating a drug dealer, but if she were, did that still mean that she should have lost her life? So it's, it's kind of like this, um, you know, there's, I, I do some work with uh, black girls in schools, black and brown girls in schools. And there's this book by Venus uh, Evans Winters. And she talks about and like in the literature, black and brown girls or, or black women are, you know, left out, whited out, blacked out or pathologized, right? And it's like, we aren't cared about enough for our names to be said in that the whole point of say her name is that see us, you know, when you see us, when your gaze is upon us, is it, are we able to be victims? You know, um, there's another study that talks about how, you know, Black women and Black girls need less nurturing and need, need less protection. And we, you know, we don't need those things. And I, and I, I know that that's wrapped up in this image of us. And that's why people can't see us as a, a, a victim of something or a, a someone harmed or, or done wrong. And uh, I think that that plays out in the way that society responds to us and how the police may treat and interact with us. Well, it's interesting that you say, you know, that you say that because in some ways, and I'd be really curious to get your opinion on this. And I'm just having way too much fun actually listening to you, quite honestly. So it seems that people really weren't paying attention to Breonna Taylor until after the killing of George Floyd. Do you see it in that same way? It was as if suddenly, well, now we can sort of go back and think about Breonna Taylor, but she was actually gunned down and murdered before George Floyd was lynched in the streets of Minneapolis. And then that, you know, struck a nerve uh, around the world and people began saying George Floyd's name as they should have. But it seemed like she got swept into that. And it, it almost maybe, but for George Floyd, would people have sustained attention about Breonna Taylor? I don't think that outside of our area, maybe they would have, because um, certainly the, the, you know, the George Floyd killing was, you know, there was a video, like you saw it, you know, Breonna Taylor's, there was not that. And so while she was killed in March, um, I get March 13th uh, of 2020, the, it's interesting because I have a lot of conversations with folks across the community and we talk about like, when did you hear about Breonna Taylor? I heard about Breonna Taylor when it happened. And the information that came out in our local news was not true, you know, and so we didn't think that it happened the way that it happened until May. And so for us, it wasn't just that George Floyd, you know, that that George Floyd incident happened. It was a combination of 
wait, we got all this information now about her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, being released from, from jail after being held for two months and charged with try attempted murder on a police officer when he was standing his ground or the, you know, he was protecting his home and didn't know that it was the police. And we were like, wait. So as a city, we were like, that's not the narrative we got in March, you know? And so lots of us knew what happened to Breonna Taylor, but we also had such a false narrative given by the police and the mayor and all the powers that be um, in the Commonwealth attorney. And once they realized that even some of them, like the Commonwealth attorney realized that, wait, this information that we got is not, this is not adding up. We cannot hold this man. Then we have to now look at what really happened to Breonna Taylor. Was is that information true? And that's how we in the city got to this point. So I think outside of our city, absolutely, it seemed like. I mean, I would even say Ahmad Arbery. You know, like I remember it was all like rapid succession. You know, and then Rayshard Brooks, and it was like, wait, like all of these names, um, and and, and so many more. But certainly, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's names were were spoken the loudest. I think globally. Um, and it's just meant a whole lot to our city for people to remember to say her name. Too. Mm -hmm. Well, it also makes me think about the fact that um, who gets to write history and who gets to write the histories about Black women? Because as you say, she was killed and there was a kind of narrative that was put in to police reports, which I've read, that were put into the news that were just simply factually untrue. But it seems to me that there's a longer arc of that. That's not just Breonna Taylor. It seems to me that that's actually the lives of Black women largely in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 like, I guess, yeah, exactly. That's just, you know, it, it, well, you know, and it, you know, makes you think about, you know, Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, right? You know, the sort of papering over that, you know, how her bedroom at Monticello even became a bathroom to talk about papering over history. So, so, so as a wrap up, I, I want to think about um, your work. As you mentioned, it's been 20 years that you've been doing this work. Um, you are an engaged academic, not only on the scholarly side, being a brilliant scholar writing in this space, but you've also maintained the importance of being engaged in the community um, with your work so that the two combine together. And I'm wondering, do you ever get discouraged? I mean, how hard is it being a black woman covering what you do in a society where mass incarceration is real and it proliferates, where it's black and brown bodies that disproportionately happen to be police surveilled, arrested, charged, prosecuted, and incarcerated, uh, and then trying to unpack this narrative, these narratives and translate them uh, for the broader world, for legislators, for students, for your colleagues? Does it get discouraging? What gives you hope? So it, it, it is discouraging often and it's exhausting, honestly. Um, but what gives me hope is that I'm raising kids, um, particularly in this community that I'd like to change so much and make better for, you know, whatever legacy I, I leave beyond my kids. And that's what gives me hope. Um, but how all of my things intersect. So being a mom of black, a black woman, a black mom in this community, researching, teaching and engaging in uh, criminal justice and social change. Um, 
I get to tell my story. You know, when I show up, I, I might show up as Dr. Dawson Edwards or Associate Dean Dawson Edwards, whatever people are calling me. But at the end of the day, I always remind people that I'm also a mother um, and I have a, a kid in public school and I now have a kid in private school. Um, and, you know, our school system is very, we're a racially segregated city. Um, our schools are super segregated. There's all this disproportionality related to the school to prison pipeline. Like we have issues like everywhere, but certainly in Louisville, we have some interesting uh, residential issues, that re residentially segregated issues. And so I tell the story and I'll tell, it, I'll tell it to you really quickly. I know we don't have a lot of time, but my son was in public school until last year and he goes to a, a highly regarded private school now for his freshman year in high school. The middle school that he went to was kind of a, a rougher middle school, but they had a, a Montessori magnet program and AP. And so he was a part of that. We picked that middle school because I wanted him to see the world, that the world isn't middle class, you know, third generation college student, that it doesn't look like that, right? And so I put him in the private school just because it just was smaller. It was just a better fit for him. And the private school is close to our house. And he, this was like maybe a month ago, he was like, you know, me and his two friends, we're going to stay after school in between the basketball game. And then we're going to walk over. There's like a, a shopping center, very nice upscale shopping center across the street from the school. We're going to walk over there and go to like five guys and get a burger. And I was like, mm, I don't think that's a great idea. You know, three 14, 15 year olds, six foot tall, you know, black boys walking around the paddock shops. Like, I, I don't think that's a great idea. And he was like, well, mom, we'll have KCD everything. That's what school he goes to. We'll have, we'll have KCD everything on. Our hoodies, everything will say KCD on it. We'll be fine. And I paused for the first time in the 14 years of his life, the 14 years that I've been a mom. And I thought, he's probably right. You know, they will know that he goes to, they will know that they go to the private school and they will think that they are fine. And I said, wow, this must be how white people get to raise their kids, that they don't have to worry about how they show up and how they navigate interactions with adults or how people are going to see them or judge them or perceive them in these predominantly white spaces. And I, and I just was shocked that how horrible is it that for 14 years I've been worried about my kid, worried, worried, worried. And the difference was that he goes to a fancy private school and that I probably don't have to worry about him as long as that happens. And so when I tell that story, I've told it a couple of times. I was on a panel the other week with our new police chief, um, with the, the FOP president. Um, and I told that story and I said, you know, I get criminal justice. I get what the police are supposed to do. I get what the police can also change. I said, but at the end of the day, I'm a mom and you can't tell me that my lived experiences and my truth is not the truth. And that that recognition that for 14 years, I never knew what it was like for you all to raise white kids in this city, <laughs> but I figured it out and I felt it and I'm jealous. I shouldn't have to live in this city worried about my children. I should be able to live in the city just like you do. Um, and mic drop. Like, yeah. you, you can't tell me that that's not true. And so I navigate, what gives me hope is that I can, I'm a human, but I'm also an academic. So people respect the credentialing. But at the end of the day, if you can respect the credentialing, you better respect the, my credentials as a mom. Because if you can trust my research, then you should be able to trust my truth. Oh, wow. What a powerful note to end on. I, I want to do this again, and I want to be able to do it in front of a broad audience uh, on a stage for folks to be able to hear that because it gives chills. And it makes me think that 
the very legacies from hundreds of years ago in Kentucky remain because that's a story that lingers, right? That the inability to be able to have the confidence in a society that your child will be safe um, and comfortable and yet to know that for kids that don't look like your son, those parents never have to worry about that at all for doing something as simple as wanting to get a hamburger and a milkshake. So Dr. Cherie Dawson Edwards, Dean, thank you so much for joining me and giving some really important insights on these issues. Thank you for having me. Guests and listeners, that's the rundown. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Cherie Dawson Edwards, for getting us right to the point and telling it like it is. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the rundown of 15 Minutes of Feminism with Michelle Goodwin with On the Issues. Join us again for our next episode where we will roll up our sleeves and hear from guests changing the world. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. Now, if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show. And please be sure to support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at ontheissuesatmizmagazine.com. And if you want to hear more of 15 Minutes of Feminism, tell us about that too. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. 15 Minutes of Feminism with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Mariah Lindsay. We thank Oliver Hogg for research assistance and digital assistance. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, Editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. And the fabulous Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance. Mm-hmm.